Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they help us to think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can learn more about me and my research on my website, jenniferannfrey.com. You can also follow me on social media, on Twitter at Jen Frey, or on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also check out some of my writing at thevirtueblog.com. In episode 17, titled The Death of a Whiskey Priest, I speak with my colleague and friend, Dr. Angela Canovo from the Catholic University of America, about Graham Greene's masterpiece, The Power and the Glory. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I am really pleased to welcome Angela Knobel to the podcast. Angela is an associate professor of philosophy at the Catholic University of America. Her main areas of research are Thomas Aquinas's virtue theory, ethics, and bioethics. Welcome, Angela. Thank you. So we're here today to talk about Graham Greene, The Power and the Glory, which is one of my favorite novels. But we should start with the obvious question, who's Graham Greene? Graham Greene was a writer who lived in the 1900s. He was born in 1904, and he died in 1991. Um, I think that a lot of people think of Graham Greene as a Catholic writer, but that is, in fact, not true. Some of his books deal with Catholicism, but he wrote very broadly, and he was, in fact, up for the Nobel Prize in literature a couple times, even though he never won it. Um, Just a few years ago, his book, The Quiet American, was made into a movie. Um, Have you seen it? I think I've seen it, but I remember the book more vividly than I remember <laughs> the movie. He ba- he basically predicted the Vietnam War. Um, it's about it's about American French involvement in Vietnam. Um, so that that would be an example of one of his more famous non-Catholic books. So he's not necessarily a Catholic novelist, although Catholic novelist might be said in many ways. Uh, But he's definitely a very influential novelist. What do you think are important about his novels? Um, I think that, I mean, for me, um, both as just somebody who enjoys literature and as a Catholic Christian, I think that Graham Greene is extremely good at capturing paradoxes and discontinuities that he observes. A little bit of background for people who aren't familiar with Graham Greene. Graham Greene converted to Catholicism for part of his life, um, and um, but he, he eventually stopped practicing his faith. And he later referred to himself as an agnostic Catholic or a Catholic agnostic. Graham Greene, I feel like, understands very well what it is that he would have to believe if he believed. I don't know that he's really sure that he does believe, but I think he grasps very well what belief requires um, and what it, um, he grasps some of the things that seem paradoxical about um, the Christian faith. He, he grasps what it is that Christians believe. And I, for me, that comes through so powerfully in this book with the priest, the whiskey priest, and then his, his antagonist, um, the lieutenant, the atheist lieutenant who is pursuing them. I think in their conversations, 
um, Green is really able to highlight some of the paradoxes um, that he sees in Christian belief. So the power and the glory. Um, if any of his novels are Catholic novels, probably this one is. Why don't you tell us something about who the main characters of the novel are? Part of the, it's it's a very historically contextualized novel, so maybe we should just set the scene a little bit. Sure. So this is a book that is um, supposed to take place in the 1930s in Mexico. Um, it's actually closely follows a time of religious persecution in a Mexican state called Tabasco. Um, so the other states in Mexico were anti-religious, but they were kind of tolerant of religion. They weren't actively persecuting religion. Um, but it, this is actually a historical fact. Um, the governor of Tabasco, on whom the fictional character of the lieutenant is modeled, um, was very anti-religious and very actively persecuted um, Christianity in his state. And was that because of, was that because of communist commitments? Like what was the tenor of that? Certainly as uh, what comes through in the book is that it's partly because of communist commitments, but it's partly just a real antipathy towards religion. It's the belief that religion is selling uh, delusion and, and keeping people in poverty, that the, that the church is oppressing um, people and keeping them down and telling them that suffering is good. Um, when in fact suffering should be uh, eliminated and alleviated. Um, Green actually requested permission to go to Mexico um, because he knew that this persecution was going on. He wanted to kind of witness what was happening firsthand. Um, and the power and the glory comes out of his experiences, his experience of being in Mexico during that time. And I think um, John Updike has a really excellent introduction to the power of the glory in the Penguin edition. And John, John Updike quotes a Catholic priest who was in Mexico at that time as saying that there is no better description to be found of what it was like um, to be in Mexico at that time, uh, which is a ringing endorsement of, of the book. So that's what the book is about. I didn't tell you about the main characters. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. But I'm just, just a follow-up. How bad was the persecution and how long did it last? So the persecution, I believe, um, began in 1924 um, with the election of, it, of an anti-religious president in Mexico. Um, it, According to um, what I have read, the persecution peaked um, in the early 1930s. Um, and then, and so, so it peaked a couple years, in fact, before Green visited in 1936. Um, and then I don't know how long it continued after that. Mm -hmm. um, but Green visited at the time, at the time, um, a little after the persecution had been in its worst. And the law that the the law that is present in the state of in this in the state in the book, which is modeled after Tabasco, basically makes it illegal to practice the faith. Priests are required to marry. Um, they receive a government, government pension and they're required not to practice their faith. Um, so at the time the book takes place, most of the priests have fled. There's one priest in the book, Padre Jose, who has obeyed the government decree and taken a wife. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is... Um, the so-called whiskey priest, who is the last priest to remain. And he has remained, but he is also um, 
become a drunk. Um, he's done all kinds of things in his drunkenness. He's fathered a child. He um, He's done all kinds of things that we, which we may have occasion to talk about as the novel goes on, but he's referred to derisively as a whiskey priest, obviously, because he's become addicted to alcohol. Now, what happens if you break the law and, you know, you say mass or you go to church or whatever? You're shot. You're killed. Right. So it's not like, it's not like a parking ticket. No, no, it's not like a parking ticket. So let's talk about the main characters. Okay, so the whiskey priest is one of the main characters. Um, for me, the the other, the second most important character is the atheist lieutenant who is pursuing the priest. The atheist lieutenant is actually pursuing two characters. He's um, pursuing someone known as the gringo, um, who is just a, a desperado. He's a bank robber. Um, he's not above using children as shields to escape. Um, he's just a bad man. And then there's the priest who the lieutenant really, really, really wants to catch. So there's the priest, there's a lieutenant who is pursuing him. And then probably another um, large character in the book is the character who is referred to as the mestizo, um, who is a kind of indigent fellow. He encounters the priest on the road. He figures out that the priest is a priest and he's basically biding his time until he can turn him in for the reward money. Right. And there are some minor characters, too. Like, there's the dentist guy. The dentist and Captain Fellows and his family, who I think are very interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, there's faithful that we meet along the way, some not so faithful. And in it, there's a sense in which the book is just about the death of a whiskey priest. Like, if you wanted to summarize it, <laughs> that's the most straightforward way. Uh, not to spoil anything, but it just doesn't end well. It's funny. You sh I, I had a friend in college, and I had expressed how much I love this book. Um, and my friend read it. And I remember he said to me, what is the big deal? It is just a book about some guy wandering around looking for wine. I mean, at some level, it is about a priest um, trying, trying and failing to escape the state, right? I mean, when the when the book opens, you meet the priest and he's trying to catch a boat and he has this conversation with the dentist, Mr. Tench. Um, and of course he, um, he's going to get on the boat, but of course he doesn't get on the boat because a child shows up saying that his mother needs a doctor. Um, and the priest has to go with him. Of course, the child is saying doctor, his mother wants a priest. And the priest knows that he's, um, probably not needed that desperately, but he can't, he, he feels the pull of his duty. And so he relinquishes his chance to escape and follows the child. The narrative of a book is a series of steps like that, right? The priest is, he would like to leave Tabasco. Um, he would like to get to safety. Um, he's, he's torn about where to go. He doesn't want to go to villages because the lieutenant chasing him institutes a policy of taking hostages from villages. Um, and if he finds out that the priest has been to a village, he kills the hostage. Um, but each time, the, the, each time, or in several of the occasions where the priest has the chance to escape, he's pulled back um, by the by his duty as a priest, by his desire to be a priest and to do the things a priest ought to do. Um, and that 
his duty eventually is what kills him because at the end of the book, um, not to ruin the ending, he does, he actually does manage to escape. Um, and the mestizo who has been haunting him shows up and says that the gringo, this very bad bank robber wants to confess. Mm-hmm. And the priest knows that again, as he's always known, as he knew at the very, in the very first pages of the book, he knows that it's not true. He, he knows that he's, it's a trap that he's not really needed. Um, but he goes back um, because he has the thought, right, of, of somebody with all that on his soul um, who, who, who's like, who he could save, um, that there might, there's a chance that this guy really does want to confess. And so um, he goes back. Um, but of course, the book is, I mean, that's the, that's the surface narrative. Um, there, well, can I just ask a question sure. about something sure. you said? So when you ca- were characterizing the whiskey priest, you sometimes said, well, he feels, you know, this duty because he's a priest. So there are the duties of the office. And then you said, and other times, oh, but he has a desire. And I think um, just prima facie, we tend to think of those differently. Like, um, you know, this is kind of like this obvious point that Kant makes so much hay about like, oh, well, I could act from duty, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, maybe I don't really want to, but like I rationally recognize the duty and reason is operative in me. Whereas, well, maybe I just really want to, I just have this strong desire and Kant sort of sees, you know, following duty as more sublime or something. But in the, but with the whiskey priest, like, um, you know, wh- which do you think it is for him? Is it really just he feels duty bound, even though he doesn't really want to, or does he actually love <laughs> being a priest? I'm glad you asked that question um, because I I very clearly think it's the latter, um, and I think that one thing that comes out very clearly in the novel is that the priest um, the priest has sinned and he's done lots of bad things. Um, but in some sense, by his own account, his, his sins have humbled him. Um, there's an occasion where he's, he's looking at, um, a picture of himself in a police station from his, the only picture that the lieutenant has of him from his former days. And when looking at that picture, he says, what an unbearable creature he must have been in those days. And yet in those days, he had been comparatively innocent. That was another mystery. It sometimes seemed to him that venial sins, impatience, an unimportant lie, pride, a neglected opportunity, cut you off from grace more completely than the worst sins of all. Then in his innocence, he had felt no love for anyone. Now in his corruption, he had learnt, and it, it goes on, but in many of the, um, in the situations, um, what, what Graham Greene does so well is he describes how the priest sees the people, um, even the mestizo who wants to turn him in, or the, there's a pious woman in prison who's telling him what a bad person he is. Um, and he, he, Green describes how, how the priest sees God in those people um, because he pities them. And he, he's able to pity them, I think, because he's aware, he's been made aware of his own fallenness and his own sinfulness. Um, there's another passage where um, the priest has been having a conversation with this very pious woman who's been put in prison for having um, religious objects. Um, and the priest is in prison with her. Um, he's been imprisoned um, 
for a reason not associated with being a priest and um, his guards don't know who he is. That's right. Um, but the priest says, um, he's thinking about how it's harder for him to love the pious woman than it is for him to love other people. It's actually a really funny scene because they're like people having sex. Yeah. No, and this is exactly, this is exactly <laughs> what, hilarious. what the conversation and, and is. Yeah. So, so like the priest is like trying to have some quasi theological conversation right. with this woman. It's just, I mean, it sort of just sets the scene, like how sort of cramped and exactly. awful. Exactly, and awful. Exactly. This really must have, anyway, I just. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, the, yeah, they're having this kind of conversation, and she's very upset about what's going on in the corner. And she's angry at the priest. Um, she's going to write to his bishop, and he's just like, come on, you're going to write to my bishop? Really? Like, do you have any idea what's going on? Um and, he, and so the, and he, here's the passage that I just love so much. He couldn't see her in the darkness, but there were plenty of faces he could remember from the old days, which fitted the voice. When you visualized a man or a woman carefully, you could always begin to feel pity. That was a quality God's image carried with it. When you saw the lines at the corners of the eyes, the shape of the mouth, how the hair grew, it was impossible to hate. Hate was just a failure of imagination. He began to feel an overwhelming responsibility for this pious woman. And so it's, it's so interesting, right? Because you asked about duty and you asked about love, but he feels love for her and his love creates in him the sense of responsibility. Right. Um, he, he's, um, he feels the need to help her and he's thinking, how do I, and he, he continue, you know, he, he eventually realizes that she had a vocation. She wanted to be a nun and her family wouldn't let her. Um, but he's able to speak to her um, and he's able to want to do his responsibility towards her because he is able to love her. Um, and I think, I think that's so interesting. And I think that's what the priest has has kind of learned through his sins. He's he's learned how to love. He's learned how to see God in the people that he serves. Right. But he's also, um, the whiskey priest is very hard on himself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so he's, he's extremely self-critical. And a lot of his sins, you know, are, are kind of minor. Um, not all of them. But, so, you know, it's sort of like, okay, I'm lazy and I drink too much and... Um, he's, he's apparently had sins of lust in his past. Um, and, and all of, all of those, I mean, those things are bad. Um, but then there are other times when he accuses himself of despair, um, where he seems to be thinking that, um, some of his sins just can't, can't be forgiven, um, or he's insistent, you know, that he could never be a saint. Um, he's just too, I mean, there's just sort of like a lot of self-loathing going on. And I wonder what we're supposed to make of that. He wants desperately to go to confession. He's repented of his sins, but he, he's, you know, he's caught in these kinds of in things that traps that, that we can all get ourselves into. Well, he feels this so much love for the child that he fathered in a moment of despair of drunken despair, right? He fathered this child and he feels so much love for her. And he's like, how can it be that I repent of my sin if I love the product of it? He wants a priest to help him to think through what is sinful and what isn't in the fact that he's fathered a child in his despair. Um, 
clearly it's not bad for him to love the daughter that now exists as a result of what he did. Um, but he, he feels like he needs to go to confession, that a confessor is going to help him work through this. And of course, that's what he doesn't have. And that's what he's asking for. And that's what he never gets. So what does that mean for him? Because one of the interesting things um, about the novel is that, you know, the church is unable to operate according to its own canonical norms, right? The people can't go to mass. They don't have anyone to confess to. It's kind of like the whole system breaks down. Um, you know, whereas if they were Protestants, like they'd be fine because you don't need, I mean, you know, you don't, you don't really need the priest. Um, you, you know, it's like, it's nice to go to church, but whatever, you can just talk to God and it's fine. But for Catholicism, it's like, well, no, but I mean, we have the, the, the sacraments, um, require a priest. And of course, priests themselves need the sacraments and like the whole system of the church is just fundamentally breaking down. I mean, that's just the, that's the entire setup. Um, and if the sacraments are the primary means through which grace operates, um, then, I mean, is, is Green somehow trying to explore like how grace can still operate outside of the formal structures or what, I mean, like what, what are we to make of that? So I don't know if I'm going to respond to everything that you've said there because you've raised a lot of really important, interesting questions. Um, I will say this. Um, for what really strikes me about, and what was what is one of the most powerful things to me about the book, is how well it embodies what Aquinas says about martyrdom, namely that it is witness, that the martyr gives witness to the truth of the Christian faith. Early in the book, just after you've met the priest and you've met the lieutenant, um, you kind of get this little snapshot of this little Mexican family um, in Tabasco, and the mother um, is reading us, you know, one of these sanctimonious little saint stories that all of us cradle Catholics have heard um, to her children about a martyr. And um, the little, you know, the boy is, the boy has no patience. He would rather be doing other things. Um, and he says, uh, he says to his mother, oh, so that guy who stayed with us, was he a martyr? And the mother's like, she's in a tizzy, like she doesn't know what to say. And the little girl goes, he smelled funny. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the mother's just, she goes to her husband. She's like, what do we do about the boy? You know, and, and her husband says, and it's interesting, you should raise this. He, he says, well, that guy is all we had. You know, we've been deserted. The whiskey priest is all we have. And it's so, to me, it's so telling that the book then, after the priest is caught, after the priest is executed, the book then ends with that little family and the mother and the mother reading yet another sanctimonious martyrdom story to her children. I think she's finishing the story she was reading to them earlier. Um, and the boy says, that guy who stayed with us, is he, a, is he a holy martyr? And the mother says, yes. And late, and late that night, and the boy is moved that they, they had a hero in their house. And later that night, there is a knock on the door, and there's a man outside, and the, the little boy answers, and the man says, can I come in? I'm a priest. Um, and the little boy is, is, is delighted to mm -hmm. be able to welcome this man to his house. I mean, um, what is, I mean, to me, um, so if I can interject a little personal story, 
um, when I was reading this book for the first time, I happened to be staying in a convent, long story. Um, and there was a very old nun and she asked what I was reading. And um, she said, oh, she said, I read that book all the way through and I just hated it. And then I got to the end and, mm -hmm. and I realized that it was a good book after all. Saints, I mean, I think that what this book shows us is that the people who die for their faith, um, now, of course, Graham Greene is magnifying this a hundredfold, mm -hmm. but the people who die for the faith are flawed. But what remains in that flawed, flawed person is the witness of what they do and of what they die for. And, you know, even the lieutenant after the priest's death, Green has such a such wonderful ways of describing um, the lieutenant. The lieutenant came along the pavement. There was something brisk and stubborn about his walk, as if he were saying at every step, I have done what I have done. He looked in at the boy holding the candle with a look of indecisive recognition. He said to himself, I would do much more for him and them. More, more. Life is never going to be again for them what it was for me. But the dynamic love which used to move his trigger finger felt flat and dead. When the, the lieutenant has an encounter with the priest and conversation with the priest, and it shakes the lieutenant's faith in his own atheism, because everything that the lieutenant hates about Catholicism is not there in the priest. Right. It's there in Padre Jose. When the, when the lieutenant goes to Padre Jose trying to find someone for the priest to confess to, uh, Green describes it as it's like somebody rediscovering a lost religion when the lieutenant talks to Padre Jose. Because Padre Jose is everything that the lieutenant wants Catholicism to be. Right. The priest is different, right? Because the priest says, look, I'm not a saint. Um, yeah, you know, card tricks aren't miracles, but miracles do happen, you know, um, and the priest is very humble. The priest isn't what the lieutenant wants to hate. And to me, that is, that's the answer. Um, faith lives on in times of persecution. Faith lives on in the witness of ordinary, flawed human beings who nonetheless believe. And that's the priest. Because what, what's so clear is that, well, one, the self-undermining character of persecuting the church, um, because in the persecution, the faith, as it were, reinvigorates itself or reconstitutes itself as the thing that it is. And of course, it's going to keep reproducing itself precisely through martyrs who are a witness to the faith, to those who are going to have the the burden of carrying it on. You have this framing, um, but now we see we see it in a deeper way now because there is there's the change in the mother, of course, but also the change in the son. But then there's the disconnect between the way that the priest is perceived by others, you know, um, posthumously, right? Like after his death, and um, the way that the priest sees himself. Right, because one of the more stunning bits of the novel is the priest's, you know, final hours when he, um, in some sense, has given up hope. I mean, he's given up hope that he's going to live. Um, or be able to confess, which I think he wants more than. Right. Um, so he's like, in a way, he's like trying to confess to himself, even though it doesn't really work that way. Um, and 
but also there's this reckoning, you know, with himself, with his life, with his mortality, with what's going to happen to him now. But the thing that he said, I can't remember if he says directly or that Green, uh, that Green maybe just mentions, is that he realizes that all that mattered in life was whether you were a saint. All he would have needed was a little self-restraint and a little courage. Yeah. And, but it also sort of raises this question about the novel, about this character, the whiskey priest, and this disconnect between the way he saw himself and the way that he's perceived by the faithful. Like, is he a saint? Is he a martyr? Or is he just a guy who had some bad luck, right? And got killed by the state. I know that. So I know that this, this question comes up a lot. Um, I think that I like to resist those kinds of questions, partly because I think that this is Graham Greene's devious, cynical, crafty, tricky side, right? I mean, I think Graham Greene, I don't know if you've ever read Brighton Rock, but it's sort of ugly in the same way, right? That there's, um, I, I think Graham Greene wants you to wonder that. Like, I think he wants to leave it open. There's a very yeah. cynical, there's a, it's possible to read this novel in a very cynical way. Right, which is that um, the priest really wasn't a martyr, um, and and didn't believe at the end. I I prefer I prefer I prefer not to read the novel that way. Um, I don't know that anyone can really have access to what happens in the mind of someone at the moment they're dying for the faith. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's not cynical to leave it ambiguous. Maybe it's exactly right, because you can't know. And maybe it doesn't matter if you know. Yeah, and I think that's the the positive. I think the, the positive thing to say is that it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter for the l little Luis or his mother or the lieutenant. At the same time, I, I would want to say that the priest did believe at the end um, and that he wasn't trying um, to just. So we have this beautiful phrase. Um, he felt like someone who had missed happiness by seconds in an appointed place. He knew it now at the end, there was only one thing that counted to be a saint. Um, and that, and that I, I think reading that, that is very hopeful. Um, but then when you read accounts, Mr. Tench's account, I believe of um what happens when he was shot. Right. This is the dentist. Right. Right. The dentist. Um, it's sort of interesting because the dentist is working on the teeth of the jefe. Yeah. No, I know. No, Watch I know. It. It's sort of like a lot of delicious. See, he's there. describing, he's describing the execution. Mr. Tench is like watching, like he's working on the guy's teeth at, right. as he's watching the execution. Um, and he, he feels like somebody ought to do something. It was, you know, because, you know, he knows this guy and he's getting shot. Um, it's very English. Good God, one ought to do something. This was like a neighbor getting shot. Right. Um, and then, and then he does nothing but watch. Right. And of course, there was nothing to do. Um, and then he's describing the priest. Everything went very quickly like a routine. The officer stepped aside. The rifles went up. And the little man suddenly made jerky movements with his arms. He was trying to say something. What was the phrase they were always supposed to use? Um, that was routine too, but perhaps his mouth was too dry because nothing came out except for a word that sounded like excuse, right? So I think it's open to question what the, 
why why does green give us that? Why does the right. green describe the priest trying to say something right. um, at the end? Is is he trying to recant? You know, is he trying to, you know, um, say okay, I'll I'll apostatize? Like I don't know. Nothing about the book hinges on what the priest was trying to do at the moment of his execution. That's right. I tend to think that it was left purposefully. Oh yeah, cynically. Oh, not cynically. Um, yeah, not cynically and ambiguous. That 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 is the sort of thing that we wouldn't be in a position to know. Because even if he had shouted out "Vivo Cristo Rey" or or whatever the slogan is, I mean, you wouldn't know necessarily if it was sincere or whether right. it was posturing. Right. I mean, there's so many questions ab about this character and various scenes. I mean, I sort of left the book really loving the whiskey priest. Oh yeah, I'm not too. sure if I was supposed to, but I definitely did. And I mean, he's so self-aware of who he is as a human, um, and then who he is as a priest. Um, and there's this like really great. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole novel. He's talking to someone. This is page 195, um, where he's, oh, he's talking to the lieutenant. And the lieutenant at this point, you know, knows who he's talking to. And he says, I'm not a priest. I'm not even a brave man. Um, he looked up apprehensively. Light was coming back. The candle was no longer necessary. It would soon be clear enough to start the long journey back. He felt a desire to go on talking, to delay, even by a few minutes, the decision to start. He said, that's another difference between us. It's no good you're working for your end unless you're a good man yourself. And there will always be good men in your party. Then you'll have all the old starvation beating get rich anyhow. But it doesn't matter so much my being a coward and all the rest. I can put God into a man's mouth just the same, and I can give him God's pardon. It wouldn't make any difference to that if every priest in the church was like me. That just really struck me the first time that I was reading the novel. Like, I mean, it is sort of like a strange bit of the office that it doesn't matter if you're a whiskey priest. Um, you can still, like these sacraments are still valid. And I think that's, um, that's interesting to think about now, given that... Um, Obviously, the problem of problematic priests isn't a problem unique to any historical time period or situation. You know, it says, I mean, there's a contrast being set up here, right? Between sure. The sure. Right. Between the party, which is trying to bring about, you know. Heaven on earth. Right. Happiness for people on earth and, and, a, and, a, and a, you know, a different sort of institution, um, which isn't like, like which precisely isn't guaranteeing you <laughs> happiness here um but is enabling you for something more transcendent um and the way that the priest sees your personal character as mattering to one or another i mean he's like yeah so if you if if you're not run by good men you know the whole thing is is going to be corrupt um but somehow like we can be personally corrupt and, that, and that's really interesting to consider at the end, too. Um, it sort of inflects how we read that last scene where we have a, you have the new priest coming in while they're reading the story about the, the old priest who's, who's now being talked about as if he were a martyr. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's so much there. And I think it's, 
I think it's so important that um, the lieutenant is trying to bring a like he wants he he loves people too, um, but he wants to his idea of helping people is to get rid of everything painful in this life and to get rid of all poverty and suffering. Um, and the priest doesn't see that as the goal, right? He sees heaven as the goal and he sees God in the people who are suffering. And I think, and he doesn't think he can do it on his own. He thinks that he needs help and grace. Um, he doesn't think that it's possible to rid the world of its problems. Um, we're all in it and there's a better life to come, but this world is going to be hard and suffering is salvific. There's a fundamental disconnect there. Um, and I think it, it comes down to the, the lieutenant's lack of belief on the one hand and the priest's faith on the other. Well, it's also interesting because, you know, the lieutenant is a real happy talker, right? So he, he will sort of give himself over to these long discourses about how um, he's just trying to get people to see the light and he's trying to help them and he's trying to eliminate their suffering. Um, but then, of course, he's going around killing all these people. <laughs> well, but, yeah, but that, that's true. But then there's that, you know, he says to the – when he's having this conversation with the, with the priest at the end, he says – I killed a man for you, you know, that these are my people and I killed them for you. And I hate you for that. He feels a love for his people, but because he doesn't, he has no belief in God and no belief in anything. His love takes the form of wanting to feed them now and clothe them now and get, he, and he, you know, he keeps saying he hates the church. He doesn't hate people. Um, and I think he does. I mean, I think a lot of his hatred, even at the end, he can't move himself to hate the priest. He gave the priest money once. He took pity on them. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I think he, I think the lieutenant's conflicted too. I guess I, like, I, I wouldn't want to have dinner with a lieutenant. Like, I don't like him that way. But I feel a kind of affection for him in his own way as well. That's interesting. I really hate the lieutenant. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, it's funny because, I mean, to me, the lieutenant is a hypocrite in a similar way that Padre Jose is a hypocrite because, like, like I said, he's a, on the one hand, he's like a real happy talker about how he really just wants to bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth, but he's willing to kill a whole lot of people to do that. Um, and he's willing to do many cruel things. I mean, I think the cruelty of the lieutenant um, can't go unnoticed. Um, sure. Um, that, like he gets off on killing people, but he's certainly like, he's not going to think twice about it. Um, you know, if, if he can't find the whiskey priest among you, he is going to take your son, um, hold him hostage and then kill him until he finds him. So, th so that's, that's interesting to me because, um, to me, the, the, the contrast or the, the comparisons would be, I think Padre Jose and the Jefe. I think they, the, the kind of the, the dissolute jefe who like sells the priest wine and, but then like drinks it all while he's sitting there. He's like, oh yeah, right. We want to bring heaven on earth. We want to feed everybody. He's taking his own, right? He's just corrupt, right? He's, he's in it for himself. The lieutenant is an idealist. I mean, Green, uh, I mean, even the whiskey priest says with wonder to the lieutenant, you're a good man. The lieutenant is in the grips of trying to rid the world of its fixation with Christianity. Um, 
I don't think he, he kills people. He's cruel. Um, but I, I don't think that he liked killing people. Um, I, I mean, I, I know that that's a fine distinction and I'm not defending what he did. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that he is, he is a man of single purpose in the way that the priest is a man of single purpose. They just have diametrically opposed purposes and views of the world. Like, um, he, you know who, you know who the Lieutenant reminds me of Ivan Karamazov. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. That's, you know, I love humanity. I hate my fellow man kind of thing. Like, um, you know, he can't, Ivan Karamazov can't believe in God because what, how would God allow this suffering? And of course, Alyosha right. says, well, the answer is to love. Well, the, the priest loves the individual and the lieutenant loves, he firmly believes he loves his fellow man. And in a way he does, but what he really loves is the idea. Yeah, he's in love with an ideology, perhaps. But I, I guess I'm more, I think there's more. Well, it's a murderous ideology. Yeah, yeah, of course. All ideologies are, aren't they? I mean, most oh ideologies God. are murderous ideologies. Um, um, well, but, many of them have, in fact, been. Um, no, but I would just say there's more, there is more in the lieutenant that could be redeemed than there, there, there is more, there is something in lieutenant that could be reoriented. Um, whereas I, in someone like the Hefe, I think there's less of that. I could be wrong. I don't know. But I just thought that there was there was a desire. Um, well, the Hefe is almost like this comical figure. I mean, the last time we see the Hefe, he's like in the dentist's chair. And he's like, he's like, um, he's like, oh, it hurts, you know, and, and, and the poor, the whiskey priest is being martyred. And that's all the dentist wants to pay attention to. So I, I want to agree with you that... Um, there is this kind of closeness between the lieutenant and the whiskey priest and that they just have, right, they have these different and incompatible um, understanding of the human person. And so they have different and incompatible goals and like it can't be reconciled. I don't personally, just as a reader, I don't like the lieutenant um, because, because I, I do think that he's given over to acts of, of cruelty because of ideological commitments. Yes. Um, but I, I think he's a, I think in the, I think at the end of the day, he's a cruel man. He's capable of cruelty that I think the whiskey priest simply is not. I want to talk about hope for a second. Hope is a theological virtue. Its object is so the, the future good that's difficult, but that you desire is, is supposed to be God or, or life with God. Um, but one thing about the whiskey priest is that he's, he seems kind of hopeless, right? So he, so he has a bad conscience. He knows that he's a sinner. He knows that he's messed up, but he doesn't really seem to have a lot of hope that um, he's going to be, you know, that he's going to change or that, that he's going to get what he really wants. And I just wondered what you what you think about that. Um, it's interesting. I think that um, you know. So if we go down the theological virtues road, right? Um, hope is a virtue, um, and they and there are opposing sins, which are in Catholics use the language sins against the Holy Ghost, um, and despair is one of them. Um, and another one, which is on the way towards despair, is. Um, the vice that we translate sloth, which is really sadness because the spiritual and divine good is difficult, right? And, and your sadness about the difficulty of the divine good kind of 
leads to inaction and inactivity on your part. And then that ultimately culminates then in despair, right? When you give up altogether, right? If you're rendered inactive because of the difficulty of the good you want, um, then ultimately you despair and give up altogether. It's interesting to me because I agree that the the whiskey priest has all these dark thoughts, right? And about himself, but I don't, I don't even see him as, as slothful. Um, I don't even see him as rendered inactive um, by the difficulty of the good. Um, I think he, his darkest moments come with respect to his own salvation, but he's certainly very active in trying to work for the salvation of others. Oh, I agree. Um, and, oh, yeah. very self-directed. Yeah. So lack of hope is, seems to be all directed at himself. And I think it relates to this question, which again, we may just agree that we can't answer, but it relates to this question of whether he truly repented at the end. How do we see grace operating in the novel? And is there any indication in the novel that like grace is working through the proof such that we might have some evidence that um, I actually think, I mean, this is, this is your um, getting to my own private little um, favorite thing that I like to talk about. I think there, um, I think there are lots of indications of the, of um, Grace working in the novel. But, and I think that those indications come through, um, through the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So Catholic theology, some Protestant theology holds that the Holy Spirit, in fact, helps us and assists us in living the life of grace. So we're not competent to act on our own. Um, and this is why, um, you know, Catholics hold that, that one receives in baptism, not just the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, but also what are known as the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the gifts um, make us amenable to receiving the Holy Spirit's promptings. I reread it in proximity to writing my dissertation and reading Aquinas on these things. And one of the things that really struck me was when Aquinas talks about the gift of counsel, right? How the Holy Spirit uh, might guide the deliberations of prudence. Um, he says that one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is prompt us to, to feel um, mercy towards other people. Um, and to me, there are so many places in the novel where the, the, the priest has a kind of prompting um, to see the people he's interacting with in a different light. Um, even the mestizo, right? When the, when the mestizo um, is, knows he's a priest and knows that if he asks to, to confess, the priest will have to listen to him. Here's this guy who wants to turn him into the authorities. And what does the priest start thinking about? He starts thinking about how this is somebody created in Christ's image, that that, the, that Christ died for this man as well. It was too easy to die for what was good or beautiful for home or children or a civilization. It needed a God to die for the half-hearted and the corrupt. He's, he feels pity. In various situations in the book, like when he talks with the pious woman in prison, he feels he, he, he's prompted to see the woman in a different way. Um, when he's thinking about whether or not to go back to hear the confession, all of a sudden he thinks, Oh my goodness! Somebody with all that on their soul. Um, how can I leave somebody like that unaided? I I think that there's a way of reading the book um, which would see those thoughts that come into the priest's head, not as of his own making, but as promptings of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the turns that his mind that that lead him again and again to thoughts of love and thoughts of pity for those that he serves, um, even in situations when he knows that most likely this is a trap or um, most you know or situations where he knows that somebody wants to turn him over to the authorities, he still his thoughts take a turn that one could that I would like to believe are prompted by um, the Holy Spirit. Every saint, and and again, this is a fictional novel. It's not an actual saint. But every saint, if you read their biographies, had these moments of great doubt. And, you know, and of great, um, you know, wondering if they were really doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, wondering if if it wasn't all really just... um, their imagination. I mean, all, all saints have these. And I, I wonder how much we ought to take the thoughts that pass through their mind as evidence of anything about their real interior state. But, you know, here's another thought that occurs to me. I mean, one thing that I would say about the whiskey priest is that he does have faith. Like, there's no indication that he doesn't believe in this stuff. And his faith is the source of his bad conscience. So he does have a bad conscience too, you know, whereas the truly vicious don't. It's kind of like an interesting feature of them. They don't regret what they do um, and they don't feel bad about it. So he has faith. As you mentioned, he does seem to genuinely love and care about other people. And so it looks like he's got some charity too. Um, And then if we want to run uh, just a standard unity of the virtues thesis, (laughs) then it looks like he ought to have hope because they're all sort of importantly Mm -hmm, interconnected. mm -hmm. I wonder what you make of that. I mean, I am inclined to think that he does have hope. Um, uh, And I think that his his continued efforts to find somebody to confess to, um, even those could be evidence of hope. The real wrinkle is that he also ought to have temperance and courage and all those other ones as well. But that's probably a different discussion. (laughs) I just want to end with, just want to go kind of go back to the beginning. Why not? We were talking about Graham Greene as a person. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I ever talked to you about Graham Greene. I think we were down here, actually, in Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, you were just mentioning how, like, Graham Greene was such a terrible person. (laughs) He was. Yeah. You're like, how is it possible that this, like, truly grotesque person could write, you know, could create such beautiful art. And actually, that is a really important question. Um, And it's a, it's a question that lots of people are grappling with now as they realize that, you know, their favorite artist um, is actually kind of a deplorable person. Um, You know, there's so many cases, there's so many like Me Too cases, right, where it turns out your favorite filmmaker, your favorite chef or whatever is just... um, a really bad guy. And then there's this question, can I separate the, the artist from the art? And so I just want to ask you as a final question, because um, you seem to do it in this case, what, what you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's true. My tendency is always to idolize authors that I like. Um, I read his books um, before I went to read his biography. I don't think it was Norman Sherry's biography. Um, I, but I started reading a biography of him and I had to quit it because I was, I was literally that disgusted with him as a human being. I just had to put it down. Yeah. Um, my take on this is that you don't have to be a good person to have insights. 
Yeah. You know? Um, no, I, completely the, agree. I completely agree because there can be incredibly great philosophers, mm-hmm. even moral philosophers and moral theologians who are just, they're bad people. One thing that I, has always been interesting to me about like the things that Aquinas says about prudence is that the person who is able to reason correctly about what they should do and not do it is the most imprudent person of all. I mean, I think that there's a whole nother level um, of evil that is possible in somebody who really does see what the right take is and who chooses not to follow it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's that's an option. Like, I'm not going to be judge and jury about Graham Greene. Uh, maybe I should finish reading his biography that I quit. Um, but um, I think we have to separate that. Other people that did bad things, I'm probably going to be more apologetic for than Graham Greene. I don't even want to say he was a nice guy in any respect. Mm-hmm. But I still think he had a very powerful insight. Um, and that, and I'm grateful. Um, I'm grateful for his novel, even though I don't like him as a person. Well, this is really fun. Thank you for coming on. Sure. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please share it with your friends, like our page on Facebook, follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes, and please leave us a positive review. We really need your support in order to keep the podcast going. Do you have recommendations or suggestions for this podcast? If so, please let me know. I really love to hear from you, and I'm definitely open to specific requests, which you can leave on our Facebook page, or you can send to my email, frey.jen at gmail.com. That's F-R-E-Y dot J-E-N-N at gmail.com.